BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So when you have a pandemic, there's basically two ways to respond to it. One is to minimize deaths, particularly a pandemic that strikes disproportionately old people, poor people, people in poor health. You either protect those people and harm your economy, slow down your economy over a period of time, number one, which seems to be the big debate in America. Actually, it's not even protect those people. You try to protect everybody because eventually everybody knows somebody who's old or in poor health and they will transmit the virus to them. So either you do that or you just say, you know, these people are expendable. We'll just let them die. And we're going to keep our economy rolling along. Now, there's a third way that has not been adopted by the United States. You have several blue states that are trying to adopt it, but they're getting such pressure that they're kind of cracking under that pressure. Gavin Newsom in California, Governor Kate Brown here in Oregon, both have backed out. They're relaxing the restrictions, right? Piece by piece by piece. This is happening in blue states all across the country because the pressure is so great. And understandably, you know, Cuomo today on TV was talking about how in New York, suicides are up, substance abuse is up, spousal abuse is up, you know, domestic violence is up. All things that could have been predicted. How do we quantify the cost of that versus the cost of the economy versus the cost of the people? And how does this play out? All these pieces to this. But this third way, this is what Hong Kong has done. They've said, you know, we don't want to have the virus here at all. Hong Kong is reopening right now. Why? Because they don't have the virus. Wuhan has reopened. They don't have the virus. And if anybody pops up with the virus, they aggressively quarantine them and do social distancing and do contact tracing and all that kind of stuff. Hong Kong right now has recorded four days straight of not a single new case. And six of the last 10 cases have seen zero additional cases. And all of the new cases came from people who traveled to Hong Kong from someplace else. All of them. In fact, they have reached such a low transmission rate that they can no longer calculate the transmission time. You know, that R0 number, if it's one, it means that every person infects one person. 1.1 means the, the, the 
the infection is spreading, one person infects 1.1 people. 0.9 means the infection is starting to collapse, which means one person only infects 0.9 people. I mean, we calculate, this is how you calculate population growth, by the way, same thing. These numbers have been, this, this model has been around forever, human population growth. But they can't even estimate it anymore in Hong Kong because they have so few cases. Iceland, same thing. They now have 1,799 confirmed cases. 10 people have died in the entire country. At their peak, which was a month ago, they were getting 106 people a day, new cases. Now it's zero. Iceland, an island nation. Now, Hong Kong's not an island. Yeah, I mean, Hong Kong Island is an island, but Kowloon is, is considered you know, part of Hong Kong, I believe. I believe it still is. So, you know, you've got that. Which raises another interesting question, which is, how is this going to play out economically? You know, both the damage to the economy on the one hand and the response of the Fed printing $6 trillion in the last couple of months on the other hand. When the Fed prints money, that's inflationary. That reduces the value of the dollar. When economic activity slows down, that's deflationary. That makes the dollar worth more and drives down both prices and wages. Just to set the table here. Inflation is when it takes more dollars to buy the same thing, so the dollar has a lower value. So you see prices going up and really hyperinflation is where prices are literally going up every day. People go shopping every day because they know the next day the price is gonna go on up. The big imperative during real serious inflation is not having money. Turn all your money, because money is rapidly declining in value, turn all your money into things. Buy houses, buy cars, buy art, buy gold, buy collectibles, whatever it may be, in inflation. Move your money out of dollars into something. But during deflation, you want to get as many dollars as you can. You want to sell the house, you want to sell the car, you want to sell the art and the collectibles and the gold and everything else, because the value of dollars is increasing faster than everything else. So you want to convert everything you can into dollars. Those are the basic strategies for surviving inflation and deflation. And you could build a case for this happening in either direction. You could say, you know, they're debasing the dollar. And in fact, there are uh, some uh, uh, hedge fund. This is uh, two of the world's largest hedge funds. Paul Singer's Elliott Management, you know, Singer the Vulture, what Greg Palace calls him, and Andrew Law's Caxton Associates and Danny Young's Daimon Asia Capital, they're all betting on inflation and they're, buy and they're investing in gold. They're betting that the value of the dollar is gonna go down and therefore the price of gold will go up. And they have put $40 billion into this. So they're betting that the government pulled the trigger the wrong way. On the other hand, I think you could build a very strong case for deflation, that, that what is coming now, and we're seeing this in the early reports, in, out of Austin, Texas, fascinating report out of Austin, Texas, Governor Abbott opened the malls this weekend and nobody is coming. You get these pictures of these malls and there's like 12 people walking around. He opened restaurants. How many people in the restaurants? Two or three. People are still afraid to come out of their houses with good reason. I mean, this virus kills young people. We've got, you know, 30 some odd thousand unexplained deaths from heart attacks and strokes in the United States, way above what you would normally have during this time. And you can't explain them all by stress. 
the probability is that the vast majority of them are COVID-19 that wasn't diagnosed because they weren't showing as lung symptoms. They weren't showing as pneumonia. And now they're thinking that even the pneumonia in COVID, what's causing people to crash so rapidly is that the blood clotting starts going crazy. And what's happening is not that they're getting an opportunistic viral or bacterial infection in their lungs, but instead that their lungs are shutting down because the arteries that are feeding the lungs and the veins that are bringing the blood back out of the lungs into the circulatory system are getting all clogged up with blood clots, including in some of the major blood vessels. So, you know, people are hiding out. And that word is spreading. By the way, Fox News has a story about this on their website right now. Sean Hannity yesterday was saying, uh, you know, uh, don't show up with weapons when you protest. I think, frankly, the lawyers at Fox News have had a talk with the talent and said, we don't really want to be on the receiving end of a lawsuit for inciting to riot. And if somebody shows up at one of these events that you guys have been pushing and they shoot somebody, you're going to be the ones held responsible. And Hannity is starting to back off. As I said, Fox News carrying this story on their website, foxnews.com. So that, in my opinion, argues for deflation. And I think that's what we're going to see. When you have a quarter to a third of the workplace unemployed, people are desperate. They'll work for anything. So you're going to see, you know, $15 an hour jobs become $10 an hour jobs. You're going to see $10 an hour jobs become $8 an hour jobs. You're going to see $8 an hour jobs become $7.50 an hour jobs, which is the federal minimum wage. And you're going to see a lot of jobs paying less than $7.50 an hour, but doing it in cash under the table. And when people have less money because wages are going down, you're gonna, they're going to spend less money. And when they spend less money, guess what's going to happen? Prices are going to collapse to get people to buy things. And as prices collapse, companies can't afford to pay their workers. And so they reduce wages. And this is called a deflationary spiral. It's what happened in the United States from December of 1929 all the way into arguably mid-1934. And I think we're on the precipice of it. What do you think? How is this going to play out in your mind? This is the Tom Hartman Program. How is this going to play out? Is it going to be inflationary, deflationary? Is it going to end up that we're sacrificing a million people in America, but hey, they're disposable. We've got our economy back. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, these are serious life and death issues that this country is confronting at a time that we have a president who frankly doesn't care about the life and death of anybody except him and his immediate family. And for me, it's producing, and I really got in touch with this yesterday, it's producing something close to rage. And I I just, yesterday I had an experience and I suddenly realized how road rage happens uh, particularly in this era, uh, you know, I, I mentioned a couple days ago, Louise said to me, uh, she drove out to this uh, garden supply center and got some uh, potting soil and stuff. No contact. They bring it out to your car, stick it in the trunk. You know, everything's good. But in any case, she said that she had uh, two times drivers cut her off in traffic and just drove like absolute maniacs, being aggressive toward her. And she's just, you know, driving maybe five or ten miles over the speed limit. The cops are out in force to looking for speeders right now. So, you know, you either drive at the speed limit or you drive crazy. And it's kind of all or nothing. But yesterday, we live on a little channel off the Columbia River. And our backyard is, is that water. And there's a bunch of geese. There are three goose families and one duck family that have been um, not quite nesting, but they've been hanging out on the beach behind our house 
and which you can see from our back porch, hanging out on that beach with their babies. One of them has, you know, six or seven goslings, or four or five goslings. One has two or three. The duck has one baby. Uh, started out with a bunch, but they're down to, you know, the hawks get them, right? They feel safe there. And there's food and there's all this kind of stuff. And uh, so yesterday, some guy comes down the beach with his dog and just lets the dog run down and scatter the geese and the babies. And they're all freaking out and they're jumping in the water and then the dog chases them in the water. And the duck baby got separated from the duck and so he's running around inside the channel going, cheep, 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 you know. And the mom, mama duck has, has fled the duck and, the, and the, the dog and the dog's in the middle. Of, and Louise is yelling at the dog owner, you know, there's a leash law here, put your dog on a leash. And he yells back, there's thousands of geese. What, what does it matter if one of them dies? And several of our neighbors who live on the water came out and started yelling at the guy with the dog and he was yelling back at them. And I was just so furious. I was thinking, you know, I, I wanted to find something and throw it at this guy. And I thought, oh my God, God forbid if I had a gun. I mean, I don't think I'd shoot him, but I'd probably be shooting in the air to try to, you know, sound like tough guy or something. I mean, it's just, and afterwards, as the adrenaline drained out of me, and I was just watching, Louise was handling it very well. I mean, she was, she was confronting the guy and she was calling him out, but, you know, she wasn't doing it with obscenities like I would have. I mean, I was just, all these words are going through my head. And after it was all done, I, I realized, you know, I haven't felt that kind of rage in a long, long, in years. And the thing that causes most people to feel rage is powerlessness. It's like, I couldn't stop the dog. I, was, I wanted to protect the geese. Every morning we go out and look at them and, you know, it's like they're, they're, they're like our pets. And it just, it just hit me, you know, that people feel rage when they feel like they've lost control. And how must it feel if you've lost your job because of something you didn't do? How must it feel if, if your wages have crashed? How must it feel if you can't pay your mortgage? You know, I'm very fortunate. I'm, I'm, I'm on Social Security. I've, I got a $3,000 a month income from the federal government, no matter what. And we pretty much own everything that we have. And we know, so we're okay. We're not rich or anything like that, but we're doing fine. And so, it, it, but there's a, you know, a, probably a third of America is totally freaked out right now. They're feeling as powerless about their economics as I was about the damn geese. And so it shouldn't surprise us when we have road rage and when we have, you know, explosions in self-destructive behavior like alcoholism and suicide. This is rage internalized. And I think that, you know, some of us also are watching the whole Trump show and feeling powerless about that. I watch the news media making incredibly stupid mistakes in covering what's actually going on or failing to cover what's actually going on. And I'm sitting here yelling at my television. Now, it's not the level of rage that I felt yesterday about the guy with the geese, but I'm pretty pissed off about it. And it's starting to infiltrate our lives. I'm trying to figure out how best to deal with this. I'm back to meditating regularly, a little more aggressively. I've uh, radically cut back. I mean, we're not going to have a glass of wine tonight, you know, with dinner. We just, you know, we're radically cutting back on alcohol. Trying to get a lot more sleep trying to be really nice to each other, Louise and I, and to our family and friends. But I think America is facing essentially a mental health crisis right now. 
as well as a, a physical health crisis, a coronavirus, and an economic crisis. We're getting it all thrown at us all at once. What do you think? Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ian Milheiser, who used to be a regular on our program back when he was with the Center for American Progress's Think Progress blog, tweets, Wisconsin's Republican Chief Justice, this is the Wisconsin Supreme Court, just dismissed a coronavirus flare-up in Wisconsin. It was in a meatpacking plant because, quote, it only impacted people who work in meatpacking plants and not, quote, the regular folks, end quote. In other words, it only hit Hispanic people, black people, and poor white people, because that's who works in the meat packing plants. Are you getting this? They're, they're just telling us. There's no mystery. There's no telegraphing. There's no, you know, uh, hidden code. You don't need a decoder ring to figure it out. It's not hitting regular folks. Who's regular folks? Well, ask any Republican over the last 40 years. Regular folks are white men. And maybe white women, depending on what the issue is. As long as it's not affecting, you know, white men, hey, we're good with it. By the way, they, uh, they busted the guy in uh, Michigan who was wiping his nose on person in the store. They nailed him. Somebody over on Twitter just pointed that out to me. You can you know, check out my Twitter feed and see it. Robin in Boulder, Colorado. Hey, Robin, what's on your mind? Well, I totally sympathize with your level of frustration with people. I'm starting to lose it, too. Twice now I've seen uh, patriot gatherings, believe it or not, in the People's Republic of Boulder. Very hmm. stunning, waving gigantic American flags, not socially distancing, shaking hands around a keg of beer and what have you, bringing their children, hmm. no masks. 
I saw my first one when I was driving home from work the other day. And then the most recent one I saw was right smack in the middle of uh, Boulder Central, right across the street from a natural grocery store, kitty corner to that. And I'm going, whoa, what is going on here? Again, no masks. And so I thought, you know what? If you can't convince conspiracy theorists with facts about wearing a mask and preventing disease, disease spread, I would suggest appealing to the lowest common denominator, which is their paranoia about the deep state, and remind them that masks trip up facial recognition software. There you go. (laughs) I love it. It's harder for the cops to know who you are if you're wearing a mask. Because at a lot of these white supremacist rallies that I've seen in the past on the news, many of them are wearing masks because they don't want to be identified. So they should be wearing masks right now, don't you think? You know, yeah. I, I mean, you, you, your your earlier point was assertion was that they're not paying attention to the statistics and you know what's actually going on. And I would say that actually they're paying very careful attention to the statistics. I've pointed out on this show a number of times, and I, I on my to do list something that I keep forgetting or not getting to every day because I'm just I'm swamped right now is going back through the news feeds of, you know, pick a media like the New York Times, for example, or CNN, just go back through the news feed and find the day when that report, that study, and it was maybe a month ago, was first released that said that this disease is disproportionately killing black people. And mm-hmm. I, I believe mm-hmm. it was right after the Wisconsin election this came out. But but it said that this is disproportionately killing black people. Seventy percent of the people who are dying are black and only 14, 15, 17 percent of the population, are black, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. You know, part of it is that black people are overrepresented in the service industry. They're more likely to be bus drivers and, you know, working in, in, in McDonald's and whatnot. Another part of it is that historic discrimination produces poor health in, in any community that's historically discriminated against, whether it's poor black people or Appalachian whites. But in any case, I think that they're listening to Fox News and right wing hate radio, which is basically saying this is killing old people who are near death anyway. And by the way, that's largely true. I mean, you know, within a few years of death, they're in nursing homes. That's why they're in nursing homes, uh, number one. And number two, it's, it's disproportionately killing people of color, black people and Hispanic people. And in the meatpacking plants, it's overwhelmingly Hispanic people. So, hey, who cares? You know, it's just, it's not killing middle-aged white guys. Well, it is, it is actually, but in very small numbers, you know, I mean, fractions of a percent. And so these people figure that, you know, it's fine if they get sick. It'll be like a terrible case of the flu. They'll, they'll come out on the other side and they'll be immune for the rest of their lives and they'll be Superman. They'll, you know, they won't have to worry about the kryptonite of the coronavirus. And look at those poor, wimpy Democrats who are hiding out in their houses. That's how they're thinking. That's what they're telling each other. And it's actually grounded in some epidemiological truth. And that's the hmm. scary part about it, because what they're saying is they're willing to kill off poor people, people of color, Poor white people, people of color, and their own elderly relatives in exchange for being able to get a haircut or, uh, you know, get back to work. I, you know, getting back to work might be the bigger one, Robin. Mm. So, you I, know, but that's just the first on. wave. That's just the first yeah. wave, Tom. Who knows what the Well, that was my point. That was up. my point before is what, yeah. when we get the second wave in the fall, and, and I think it's going to start happening in late summer, you know, given the time ratios here. When we get that second wave, it's going to hit the red states disproportionately because they're not social distancing and they're not protecting themselves. And when it does, 
you're going to go from one tenth or even one percent of the population knowing someone who died to three, four, five, six percent of the population knowing someone who died. And there's going to be a tipping point in there somewhere. And when that tipping point is hit, people are going to turn against the Trump and the Republicans. And the question is whether that's going to happen before the election or after the election. Yeah, but it's coming. It's coming. Joanne in Baltimore. Hey, Joanne, what's up? I was just wanted to just bring up a point. I think at this time, I mean, all these states are opening up that maybe we should just stay home anyway. Um, yes. And not go back to work. Um, just do a national strike, per se. And this would be a great time to organize people, too. Well, here's, here's so, the problem, Joanne. The reason why these red state governors are declaring an end to the lockdown is because now, if, if you live in one of the states that's repealed this, and you don't want to go to work, you may not claim unemployment benefits. And if you're already on unemployment benefits, you are going to lose those benefits. That's why Brian Kemp is doing what he's doing, or a large part of it. It's why Ron DeSantis is doing what he's doing. It's why Greg Abbott is doing what he's doing. These Republican governors are, quote, opening their states. People aren't necessarily coming back to work, but they're losing their unemployment benefits. I know. And I mean, this is basically a choice between your life or, or, or working and, and earning money. So exactly. me, I would choose my life, but I hope everyone else makes that choice, too, mm-hmm. and just stays put. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely with you. Joanne, thank you for the call. Great to hear from you. John in Hammond, Indiana. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. This reminds me of the Turner Diaries, you know, Timothy McVeigh anti-government. You know, the irony is they're waving the flag. But, you know, like you and your wife experienced, I see that every day. The fact is the local police don't even enforce a lot of the laws around here. It's, it's, it's like there's this anti-government, or we don't believe in the law, we don't want the law, we don't want tell, people telling us what to do. It's like an anarchist perspective of... Uh, oh, it's not, an, it's not anarchist. It is, it is fascist. It is corporatist. Yes. It, is, it has been promoted since 1981. Ronald Reagan kicked this off in his inaugural address on January 20th, 1981, when he said, government is not the, cause, the solution to your problems. Government is the cause of your problems. He said it a little more eloquently than that, but that's what he said. And that has been the... And, and by the way, that was the mantra of David Koch in 1980 when he ran for vice president of the United States on a libertarian ticket, saying we need to end public schools. We need to end Social Security and Medicare. We need to end unemployment insurance. We need to end publicly funded roads and highways. We need to end the post office. I mean, that was his platform. And, uh, you know, you can easily find it. Uh, You know, David Koch's Libertarian 1980 platform. This is the end point for them. Billionaires own everything. Social Security goes to to Bank of America. The Medicare goes to United Healthcare. You know, no more Medicare, no more Social Security. The public roads go to companies that are going to put up toll booths and they're going to charge you for everything you do. The public roads will be owned by United Airlines or something. This is their vision for this country. This is this so-called libertarian paradise. It's what Ayn Rand laid out in, in Atlas Shrugged. It is, uh, you know, it's what uh, uh, Milton Friedman was promoting out of the Chicago School of Economics for decades. It's, you know, to a large extent, it's what has happened in some countries that have adopted his policies. Chile back in the 70s with Augusto Pinochet, you know, to a certain extent, Russia right now under Putin. You know, again, they, they liberalized their economy in quotes and, you know, opened everything up. And what do you get? You get an autocratic plutocracy, essentially. You get all these billionaires that emerge and they end up running the show. So, John, your point is well taken. I would just take it a step farther. 
Ten minutes before the hour. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's what's up? You know, Tom, I, I, I don't mean to laugh, but when I hear people say the second wave, the, mm-hmm. the first wave ain't over. Yeah, the tsunami ain't over. Oh, it's picking know. up in the red states right now. It's, it's going down in the blue states. And everybody watches Cuomo saying, hey, we've nailed this. And they think it's the whole country, which is kind of a downside no, of no. having Cuomo on TV every day. We are, I think, in some ways, losing the, uh, losing the rhetorical battle with Trump and the economy. And I'm not saying we are. Well, we are in the sense that the consensus of knuckleheads is to just who cares. Let me give you some easy numbers. I, I just did this, and, and I'm sure my math is right because it, it matches up with reports. So I took 15 cases. We got 15 cases, February the 26th. Going to be down to zero, so that's my benchmark. I'm sure we had more than 15 cases, but we had 15 confirmed cases. So in 60 days, we went to a million, roughly 60 days. So I thought, what is the rate of increase here? Okay, so I did a little math, a little logarithmic math, and found out that the rate of increase per day is 20%, so 1.2. 1.2, and if you raise that to the 60th power and multiply by 15, you'll get a million. Well, what does that mean? So I thought, okay, and the reason I know that's right is because the reports are always that cases are doubling every four days. So 1.2 to the fourth power is two. That math is right. Now, listen, I decided, okay, we got a million cases. Let's just say one-tenth of one percent of that million are running around still infectious. We're starting the game. All of, and remember, the 15 to a million was when we were sheltering in place. So I'm well, and keep in mind, Paul, the one thing you've got to throw in here in all this math is that it looks like 30 to 40 percent of all cases are free of symptoms, but for several weeks they're shedding virus. So those people yeah. are not getting tested, and so they are not included in your million because the only people pretty much getting tested in the United States, with a few rare exceptions, are people who are actively sick. Right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of taking the same tact as the University of Washington numbers where they were playing it safe and presuming that people were, were uh, sheltering in place. Now they're using another presumption that we're actually going to have tests and be able to do contact tracking. I'm not doing that. I'm just taking it the same thing all over again. Best case scenario, I say take a thousand people, say a thousand people out of a million are still infectious and do the same formula all over again. That's a thousand times 1.2 to the 60th power. And I, you come out with 66 million people infected in the next 60 days. And if you had the same death rate, which on the first million was 63,000, that's a 6.3% death rate. The same death rate applied over the next 60 days is three and a half to four million. If you just didn't take the brakes off it, these people are just going to go out. They're already doing it. I mean, these knuckleheads in Michigan, these people don't get it. They don't even know what a virus is. I'm going to tell you something else. None of those people have a job. There's nothing essential about any of them. <laughs> if they have time to take here's the, the Here's the one, go, the one caveat. Let me toss a caveat into your, to your math here, Paul. Greg Abbott opened the malls this weekend. Uh, there's, I don't recall which site it was on that I saw it, but I think it might have been a raw story. In one of the biggest malls in Austin, Texas, there were 12 people. Only a third of the stores even bothered to open. And, uh, you know, they talked to one of the more high volume stores and they didn't sell a single thing all day. Even where it's opened back up, people are still social distancing and sheltering in place. And that's going to slow down those numbers that you just laid out. I, I think it's going to slow it down by at least an order of magnitude. Well, you okay, may say by fifty percent. 
Okay, well, an order, an order of magnitude of $66 million would be $6.6 million. No, oh, which is right. going to take you to, to 600000 debt, or what, you're, you're, you're doing your math, 6 times 6, 3.6 million, that would be 360,000 debt, if you drop it. No, I, I, came up, I came up with $66 million. I mean, we get too into the weeds on the math. But the fact sure. of the matter is, if, if we started with 15 cases and ended up with a million, all I said was, if you just take a thousand, that's one-tenth of one percent, a thousand of those million that are still infectious and out there, then you end up with a, I mean, you end up with a, well, you end up with 60 times the catastrophe. We're going to have upwards in the range of 60 million. And now in just a week, it went from a million to 1.2 million. I'm like, wait, the point two, ladies and gentlemen, is 200,000. Million, a million infections last week mm-hmm. was, is now 1.2 million. Right, so oh, that's, yeah, that's okay. 200,000. So that's 200,000. In just a week that they say they've tested, and the, the breaks are just—I I don't see this. I just can't see this. And here's the thing: even if you have five million people infected that we and they're unaccounted for, the country is 330 million people. That leaves 325 so victims. No, ready I get, to I get go. it, Paul. Paul, I'm, I'm, we're, we're about to hit the break. Uh, here's here's another question. So at you're saying 60 days out from now, we'll have 66 million infections. And probably a month after that, more than two-thirds of America has had the infection. At that point, you're looking at August. We now have herd immunity, and Trump opens the economy back up in September. I, maybe that's his plan. We, we, don't, we, don't know if, we don't know if immunity exists at this time. We don't know about that herd immunity theory. You're right. Yeah. Although it seems to, to be playing out in China. It actually does seem to be playing out. But yeah, you're a good point. Paul, thank you for the call. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Terry in Eugene, Oregon. Hey, Terry, what's up? Hey, Tom, how you doing? Just the ideology that profit over people seems to be mm-hmm. running everything now. And I'm just curious, like, it's never always been that way. And it seems now it's more rampant than ever. Again, the idea that a human being is, or money is more important than a human being. And you see that more, I don't want to say just Republicans, but just that concept, that whole brainwashing aspect of money over people, and that has to change. And it feels like that's not even close to changing right now. I'm just, it's frustrating to see it daily. Right. Let me take you into the Wayback Machine here, Terry. Peter Farb, who wrote Man's Rise to Civilization and the Native American back in the 60s, he's passed away now, but it's just an absolutely brilliant book. He, it's the first contact stories with 37 different Native American tribes. He pointed out there's this thing called social overhead. There's a whole chapter about this in my book, Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. And social overhead is how many members of society do you have who have the ability to be productive but are not productive. In other words, you've got a certain number of people in society who are making food, who are making housing, who are making clothing, who are making the things that we all need. And in a tribal society, that's pretty much everybody. Pretty much, you know, in Native American societies, that's pretty much everybody who's capable of doing it. And then you've got the people who are not productive, and you saw this explosion in these non-productive people happening as we moved out of hunting and gathering into farming. And as agricultural societies, uh, Daniel Quinn writes about this in Ishmael, as agricultural societies spread, 
the food, particularly in climates where you have uh, seasonality, where there's long seasons like the winter where nothing is being grown, you have people who store the food, who lock the food, and who decide who gets the food, which is the earliest form of money and power. And those people will figure out ways to get more and more of the food and lock it up more and more aggressively and make other people bend to their will. And sometimes they do that by saying that the gods tell them to. And so you get these huge, unproductive structures like the Catholic Church, where they're not actually producing anything that helps society or serves people, or any local church for that matter. I mean, you can make an argument that there's some emotional support there, but it's not necessary for existence. This is social overhead. Government, arguably, is social overhead. These people are not producing anything. But the biggest form of social overhead that we now have in the United States, in my opinion, is multi-generational hereditary wealth. These people like the Koch brothers who inherited you know, millions and millions of dollars from their father. Donald Trump inherited millions of dollars from, their, from his father. And they build these business empires, but they themselves are not doing anything productive. All of the money that they make is because at the very bottom of that pyramid, people are working. The social overhead, for example, Peter Farb points out in Egypt during the pyramid building time. You know, they were just burning through human beings to build those pyramids. But the social overhead was huge. You had this probably three quarters of all the wealth in Egypt was controlled by basically a small number of families. They were the pharaohs. And we're now at that point in the United States where we have massive social overhead. So if you ask where did this start, it really started with the agricultural revolution. The earliest records of it are from four to 7,000 years ago with the Epic of Gilgamesh. The story in Samaria, what is now known as Northern Iraq, which used to be covered with forests, and these tribal people, the Sumerians, settled down along the Euphrates River and built this city. It was called Ur, and Gilgamesh was their leader. And he went up and cut the forests of Northern Iraq, which is why it's still desert today, and built this giant city, but he was the ultimate leader. And of course, the gods were upset that he cut the forest, so they punished him by making their barley fields. They had hundreds of thousands of acres growing barley, and they were irrigating it from the river, but they didn't know how to properly do irrigation. So those fields ended up being filled with salt from the river, and the net result of it was that the fields died, the city died, and their story about it was that the gods punished them. But it was another story of cultural overhead. So You know, that's where the profit over people started, was the people who had locked up the food, and in our case, the people who have locked up the money, which represents access to food. And therefore, you've got literally 40 million people in America who in the last year have experienced food insecurity. You've got 100 million people in the United States who are living at or slightly or below, substantially in many cases, the poverty line. We've got, you know, at the same time, you've got the the largest collection of billionaires on the planet controlling, you know, just, just the top 100 billionaires in the United States, controlling enough money to basically make everybody on the bottom, you know, not necessarily wealthy, but certainly, you know, getting along fine. But that's where it started. Did I answer your question, Terry? Yes, you did. You're amazing. Thank you so much, Tom. Have a great day. Okay. Thank you, Terry. Yeah, good talking to you. And that's, this is like the seminal question of our time. You know, the whole thing of the New Deal, the whole thing of the Great Society, Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson, those programs were about reducing cultural overhead, about taking money out of the pockets and the hands of the very, very rich and putting it in the hands of the very, very poor and putting people back to work and strengthening small businesses. And then Reagan came along and said, no, we're going to increase cultural overhead. 
We're going to make the rich even richer. We're going to consolidate the number of businesses. My book on Monopoly, which is coming out in a few months, talks all about this. So, you know, about how, you know, get rid of the small businesses, get rid of the entrepreneurs, make concentrate everything. That's the Republican way now. Tom Harbin here with you. Fascinating. I just got my newsletter. I was looking at this, uh, checking my mail during the break, and I got my nature newsletter, and there's this amazing story. They are working out the genetics, and thus it's like looking in a time machine, right? You look at somebody's genome, and you can see what was happening in their genetics 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, 500 years, 1,000 years ago. So they're doing this with SARS. What they're saying is that 1,200, the year 1,200, there was only one SARS virus. And that in the year 1200, it split into two. And one of those two became a virus that is known as the SARS-CoV, which is the, I believe, is the SARS virus that had the outbreak in China and you know, ended up in North America. And we had like 8,000 cases and we finally stamped it out, which China and Australia and New Zealand are trying to do with this one. So that was 1,200 years ago, and then, the, but the second one that split, it uh, split out, and in 1700, around the time of intense population of America, it split again. One went into a virus that infects pangolins, and the other went into a virus that infects bats. It's called RATG13. It's the closest known relative of SARS. And then that split out in the late 1900s, around 1970, into two separate viruses, the RATG13, the bat virus, and SARS-CoV-2, which is you know, now known as the SARS-CoV-19 or the COVID-19 virus. So this virus goes back all the way to 1200, the year 1200, as far as we can tell. I think that's absolutely fascinating. I'm just a total science geek around this stuff, but I thought that was really good. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's up? Oh, I wanted to uh, say hello and uh, thank you for mentioning the epidemic within the pandemic, which is the pre-existing condition of being black in America. And though I appreciate your mentioning the fact that black people in this country have disproportionately been affected by this virus and have died from it disproportionately, grossly so in some states, This is nothing new. Across the board, uh, if you look at any health metric in this country and almost any disease, black people always come out dead last. So this is just an extension of that and unfortunately just another manifestation of what I call blackism in America. And that's unfortunate. But I do want to tell you that there is some good news, I guess, in all of this, and that's You know, it's kind of uh, morbidly good, but, you know, if you'll notice, there haven't been any mass shootings since the lockdown. Yes. Yeah. Where are the mass shooters? You know, God forbid. Excellent points, Kenyatta. And I would add that, you know, I haven't, like I said earlier, I haven't had time to really do the research on this. And if, if you decide to pick this up and run with it, you know, let me know if there's anything to this. And if you can document it, I will credit you in anything I write about it. And I know you write for opednews.com frequently. And in fact, I've referenced your writing before. But it seems to me, and I'm just doing this from memory, like I said, I haven't done the deep dive into the timelines. But it seems to me that there was this report that came out 
three, four weeks ago, thereabouts, that said, hey, wait a minute, everybody. It looks like it's this is disproportionately killing black people. And three or four days after that report, which was widely reported, it was all over MSNBC and CNN, it was all over Fox News, three or four days after that report came out, that was when these white billionaires started aggressively funding these open the economy movements. And the former Klan members who now call themselves don't tread on me people or maggots or whatever they call themselves, they came out in large numbers at the state capitals demanding that the economy be opened. And all the pressure started because, hey, those are all white people, right? And it's not going to affect us. It's mostly black people. And I think that there's an absolute cause-effect relationship there. What do you think? Absolutely. It's culling the herd. I'm going to tell you a real quick story. When I was 16 years old, I got my driver's license. And uh, I was so happy, of course, like any 16-year-old. And like me, I was uh, raised by my dad. Uh, I'm single parent, I mean. And I went home and I told my dad, I says, I got my driver's license and I'm going to be a organ donor. And in California, for an organ donor, there's a designation on your driver's license saying so. And he looked at me and he said, boy, don't you do that. You go back there and you take that off. Because if they find out you're an organ donor and you get hurt in an accident or something, that's even more incentive for them to let your black ass die. And I never forgot wow. that. Wow. <sighs> Kenyatta, you bring some of the most moving moments to this program. Thank you so much for the call. Sure. It's good, good talking with you. Randy in Ottawa, Iowa. Hey, Randy, what's up? Hey, Tom. I can't believe I came after Kenyatta. I listen to him every it's time. Not. Whenever I hear him, I, I like to listen to him. So I wanted to uh, reference, there's several things you've talked about that touched me today that, that I feel strongly about. But one of them is, there's been an, I've had a, an undercurrent with me uh, since you wrote the book on the Second Amendment and the gun rights and your feelings on guns. And you see these guys with their ARs and stuff like that showing up at the Capitol. There are things going on on in this country that you can't put your finger on that you don't see on the surface. And we're, it's my feeling that at some point us peaceful Democrats or peaceful Americans, Republicans alike, may fight fire with fire in order to protect ourselves if it ever breaks down to angry mobs. It's sad, but I was wondering, as you go through this and as this situation develops, I would like to listen to you to if your opinion changes as to the necessity. Or the, arms. The, yeah, on, on bearing arms. And I'm a veteran, and I was trained on a M16 and M202 grenade launcher and, and the uh, M60A1 machine gun. And I don't own an AR-15. I own a hunting rifle. But at some point, when things look really funny, I might, whether I have to use it or not, I might want to have one. So I just wanted to lay that out there. And uh, yeah, you, for you to you're think thinking, about, Randy, I think your thinking is widely reflected in America. The guns are flying off the store shelves. A lot of states have listed gun dealerships as essential businesses that have to stay open or can stay open. And... I don't think that those are all being bought by right-wing crazies. I may be wrong. They're not. I may be very They wrong. are not. I don't think so. You can't buy ammunition in most places, right? Like a Shields or a Bass Pro. They're like 30 and, and uh, uh, 
you know, 30 days to 60 days out before they can supply their orders, and they might not be able to fulfill mm-hmm. them. The so thing is, is this is the third? An- I know there was a huge ammunition shortage in December of 2008 and January 2009 after Obama was elected. And then there was another one. In fact, there's a Wikipedia page just for these two ammunition shortages. And the second one happened in the weeks after he was reelected. Is this the Sandy third Hook. one right now? Sandy, Sandy Hook was a big one. There was another Sandy. ammunition shortage after Sandy Hook. Fascinating. Go ahead. Yes, sir. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Randy, thank you. Joan in Greenville, North Carolina. Hey, Joan, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I wanted to speak to your um, premise about uh, the cult followers or Trumpism followers doing an about face when the tables start to turn on their own people dying. Mm-hmm. I thought the same since Trump was installed, but recently I watched a documentary about Jim Jones and it completely mm-hmm. turned my head around. What I hadn't taken into account were the more zealous among them because, you know, they're not monolithic. They vary in their zealotry, you know, towards their mm-hmm. their cult leader. And that the more zealous among them will become enforcers. I mean, they members of his cult actually killed a number of people who dissented and didn't want to you know, right. Go, uh, and one member of the cult sent bombs like to all the Democratic leadership. And if he had been a slightly more competent bomb maker, he almost certainly would have killed a number. You know, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, uh, President Obama. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, a bunch of folks right. like that. And, you know, he had. Well, uh, that just Trump completely changed my head name. around. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my concern is the enforcer mentality might kick in. You know, I mean, they're getting more and more brazen because they're not being challenged. So, the, yeah. you know, why wouldn't they like Trump? You don't challenge me. I have a green light to go forward and escalate. So in your metaphor is uh, going out in public without social distancing, the equivalent of drinking Kool-Aid for, you know, the people who were following Jim Jones. Yes, I will take a risk. I on don't my think life. they see it as that. My point was not no, necessarily a suicide pact, but that they're following. You know, they're following the cult. Their cult is their religion, and it's not, they're not thinking critically. Obviously, they aren't. They wouldn't be following Trump if they were. But my point is that, you know, the more zealot among them are going to become enforcers, you know. Joan, thanks. I appreciate the call. Ken in New Bedford, Mass. Hey, Ken, you got a quick one here? Yes, very quick. Uh, Today is the uh, 202nd uh, birthday of Karl Marx. And about 150 mm. years ago, he wrote something that very much pertains to what's going on in the world. He wrote that uh, in a monarchy, the bourgeoisie rules by force, whereas in a republic, the bourgeoisie rules by deception. So mm. I thought you'd enjoy and that. that deception is cloaked in the robes of economic dominance, is that the point? Well, deception, you know, meaning uh, lies, which we know that Mm -hmm. Donald uh, does more than any other president that we've ever had, I suppose. And uh, and that's how they get by. Uh, You know, the whole thing is a house of cards built of lies. Yeah. Well, the question, I guess, then is... Thank you, Ken. I guess the question then, given, you know, what you're saying, and I don't disagree with it, is, you know, when do they start to wake up? And I'm thinking that it's going to start happening when people in their own family start dying. You know, fewer than 1% of Americans, probably somewhere between 1% and 2% of Americans, know somebody who has died from this disease. But in, you know, in high density, the, the Northeast, 
it's probably more like 5%, which means in Nebraska it's probably 1 one-hundredth of 1%. So, you know, when do they wake up? We'll be there. James in Spokane, Washington. Hey, James, what's on your mind today? Well, I want to change the topic a little bit and talk about the psychology of billionaires. Mm -hmm. It seems to me anybody striving for even a million or something would be OCD, at least. And I trust Rory in psychology. There's a lot of uh, common sense there. You know, it just makes sense. These people are OCD. When you get a million or something, Tom, I think you're psychotic by that point in this capitalistic system. You get that many yeah. marbles. Well, the value of the dollar has fallen considerably. Let's say five million or ten million. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, Even it's so a million six zeros yeah. on the on the side of a one or a lot of anything, anything. Yeah, you're when absolutely. You edit, right. I, you're I absolutely think right. I think you're insane. Yeah, yeah. I you know I, I I have said many times in this program that I think that many of these people, many of these billionaires are actually suffering from hoarding syndrome, which is a subset of obsessive compulsive disorder. And had the Koch brothers, for example, or, had, you know, pick your, pick your billionaire, right? And not, obviously not all billionaires, but, you know, the ones who are just absolutely obsessed with getting one more dollar, just one more dollar. These are people who, had they been born poor or had they been born with a less adequate business skill set, or without friends who could introduce them into a world where they could make huge piles of money, would have you know newspapers up to the ceiling in their apartment, and they'd be keeping all their tin cans and, and jars and things. Um, you know, uh, now obviously there are some billionaires who, who kind of lucked into it, or who got you know got good at it, and they've. I mean, you know, look at uh, Tom Steyer for example. He's he's created a, a national nonprofit to deal with climate change, and before that he was. He was dealing with uh, the unbanked. I mean, you know, he took his billion dollars and he did some some pretty good stuff with it. Um, you know, Bloomberg. You wonder if you know his his good works are really you know like uh, when um, John D. Rockefeller, when his uh, I think it was Edward Bernays was his public you know his his PR guy as I recall, and told him to go out and give shiny dimes, brand new shiny dimes to urchins, right, to beggars on the streets. <laughs> excuse me, in New York City, which he did, and it got him the photo op. Gary in Naples, Florida. Hey, Gary, what's up? This is my own personal view. I believe I know, uh, of course, I'll never know 100%, but I believe in why all this has happened to our beloved America, the virus, and what's been going on for a long time. Let me guess, greed? Yes, sir. As I mentioned, yeah. as I mentioned before, uh, when we talked a number of times, and I can bring this up, it's not my behalf. It's not putting a star on my chest. It's just what I truly believe that there was going to be an event, and you thought there would be an event too. You wrote a book about it, financial event. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what the event would be, but it just felt so strongly. But I'm sure I'm not the only one that felt maybe there could be something happen, and it happened. And sadly, it yeah. happened. I believe entrenched greed sadly caught up to the neocons and the rich and the selfish and sadly caught up to America as a whole and to the world. I think that's what's yeah. happened. I'm with you. Period. I'm with you, Gary. And this pandemic is demonstrating to all of us what that does. Gary, thank you for the call. You're right. Greed has no heart. Buddy in Tucson, Arizona. Hey, buddy, what's up? Yeah. Hi, Tom. Uh, it's an honor. You were talking earlier about what to do to keep your spirits up and, and with all this crap that's going on. And I just 
when, when I think life sucks, I just realize mm-hmm. that there's about 6 billion people on this planet that would trade places with me in a heartbeat. Yeah, it's true. It's true. The vast majority of the planet, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, I could and, be living uh, in Somalia. It's kind of a or... on, you know, back in the day, mom saying that, you know, hey, eat your food. You know, there's, there's people starving in China. And I used to say, well, you know, let's put it in a box and mail it to the, you know, every little kid did. Um, but there actually were famines in China back in the 60s. And, and uh, in fact, a, a very severe famine that you could say set up the whole cultural revolution, which then itself killed a lot of people. But the simple fact is that as much as we may complain about the United States and the Republicans, the red states are ripping off workers and, and uh, you know, every business seems to be run along the principles of a scam and all this kind of stuff. All that said, still, we have ex- extraordinary riches in this country compared to other countries. Rick in Santa Rosa. Hey, Rick, what's up? Yeah, on the news today, Trump wants U.S. children to go back to school. So I was remembering the woman who called you who went through the blitz. And so mm-hmm. I thought, isn't it like ordering the children of London to leave the shelters and go back to school, ignoring all those bombs? Yeah. Yeah. Although the risk is greater for their parents and grandparents than it is for, for them themselves. But yeah, I, I, I think your, your analogy is timely and trenchant. Well said. Mike in Oakland, listening on 910 AM out of San Francisco. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? My heart goes out to all the, the victims and, and, and the family of, of you know, who, who got this virus, first of all. Yeah. But uh, according to The Guardian today, it looks like we got another whole war going on with the commies. Only this time it's not based on nukes, but biological warfare. As a yeah, Trump, Trump has ordered Mike Pompeo to talk to all the spy agencies and see if he can get some proof that this virus came out of a lab in, in Wuhan, China. The scientists who look at the DNA are all saying, you know, the DNA would tell you if it came out of a lab, and it didn't. Uh, it came out of a bat. But uh, Trump wants to be able to blame it on China. He tried to blame it on Obama. He said Obama left him broken test kits for a virus that didn't exist. <laughs> Anyhow, Mike, I'm sorry I interrupted you. You want to finish your thought? Well, also, also uh, Dr. Peter Bragan in, in, in the Science Journal, also the Science Journal, Nature, of November uh, 2015 has fascinating input on on the subject, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, is is this a, another WMD accusation going on? That's essentially what Trump's trying to do. He's he's trying to play the victim card, and he's trying to say all you guys who died and all you families who are mourning the loss of your people. It's not my fault because I failed to do anything about it in November when I was warned, in December when I was warned, in January when I was warned, in February when I was warned, and finally we did a little bit in March. He's saying it's not my fault. It's the fault of those nasty Chinese. Uh, so, yeah, there you go. Mike, thanks for the call. Steve in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hey, Steve, what's up? Uh, Yeah, I was just following up on earlier when you were uh, talking about putting the identity of a person as as sort of an emblem of the Yeah, if I can just real quickly uh, recap that. Back back a a year or so ago, Kate Steinel was an attractive middle-class, middle-aged white woman who was killed by an undocumented person's gun falling on the ground and discharging into her. And Fox News and Trump and and right-wing hate radio ran with that for months. And I'm saying we need a Kate Steinel. We need a victim of the COVID virus that average white Americans will identify with. Back to you, Steve. 
Well, what made me think about that was uh, maybe uh, more of an identity for small cities. I live outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I believe our population is about 80,000 people. And a lot of people come here to visit, and it may be an identity factor if everybody thought everybody in the town of Santa Fe as being dead. Hmm. Yeah, but that's, that's an abstraction. What I'm saying is that we need to find one person who died of this virus, who left behind a family, who has a story that would be a Norman Rockwell kind of, you know, um, middle class American story and say, you know, this is the face of this virus. And, you know, because you've got, uh, you know, basically right wing hate radio and, and Fox News, they're starting now. Their main message is this is only killing black people, old people and poor people. So don't worry. It's all good. And, mm. you know, in fact, that's not the case. Black people, poor people and and elderly people are sustaining the majority of the, of the deaths, but certainly not exclusively. And, uh, you know, so I, I'm saying, you know, we need to find the equivalent of Kate Steinle and start real, you know, uh, deify that person on the left. But, you know, I don't think the left is so organized they can pull it off. Anyhow, thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us to participate. And there's a lot you can do online. There's a lot you can do from home. In particular, waking up your friends and neighbors and telling them where they can find good progressive media. Share the word. And thanks so much for being with us. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be safe. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.